Hello and welcome to The Energy Gang, a discussion show about the fast-changing world of energy. Coming to you again from the COP28 Climate Talks in Dubai. I'm Ed Crooks. And it's my great pleasure to welcome today in person. We're all sat around the same table, which is a very rare thing for us to be able to do. Most often we record these podcasts remotely. So it's a great pleasure to be here in person with old friends, Melissa Lott, who is the Director of Research at Columbia University's Centre on Global Energy Policy, and also newly appointed uh, climate professor, or professor at the Climate School. What is yeah, that new job you've yeah, got? I'm a professor at the Climate School. Congratulations again on that appointment, and great to see you here, as I say, in person. And also, great pleasure to be joined by uh, Michael Weber, who is the Maquetta Centennial Energy Chair in Engineering at the University of Texas in Austin. Michael, great to see you also. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you in person. So... I'm kind of overwhelmed, I have to say, by being here. Been here only about three or four days, and already it feels like, as they say, my head is full. I've seen and heard too much to be able to make sense of it all properly, and I suspect you will feel the same way as well. It's a very overwhelming experience being here. I'm interested to hear how you feel about it both, because I know for both of you, it's your first COP, right? You, neither of you have been before. I have been to a COP before, but not for a long time. I went to COP 15 all the way back in 2009. Um, and there's some few stories about I, that, yeah, I can tell you, which we might want to get into later oh on. But first of all, yeah, as I say, let's, let's think about COP 28 and where we are now. I mean, Melissa, how has it struck you then uh, for the days that you have been there? What are your first impressions? Um, I think last night I summed it up pretty well. I was chatting at our dinner uh, that we had last night that was on financing the transition. How do we move money? And somebody said, how long have you been at COP? And I was like, technically a day and a half, but it feels like about mm, three weeks. <laughs> and they laughed and said, that's every single COP. Like that's how it feels. One day is at least a week. Um, and we pack so much into the time that we're here because it's such a short period of time. I guess that makes sense. And what about you, Michael? Has it struck you? I describe it as like Disneyland for climate enthusiasts. So it's sensory overload. There's just too much to see and do. And you have to choose constantly about which booth or pavilion or thing to go see and visit. And it's also physically huge or geographically huge. It covers a huge area and it's outdoors like Disneyland. So you have to walk out of the heat from place to place and it's hard to find shade. And then there's often a long line for the main attractions or food. And then just like Disneyland, you're exhausted at the end, but then you say you'll come back because it was kind of fun. And as Melissa said, you get to see your friends and that kind of thing. So it feels like an amusement park for people like us who care about these topics. Does that mean it's the happiest place on earth? Uh, it's not the happiest place on earth, but I never believe that for <laughs> Disneyland either, frankly. So. And it is kind of extraordinary, I think, how these talks have evolved over time. And what they've turned into, because there is a kind of, so there is a hardcore at the middle of all this jamboree, this huge kind of, as you say, theme park of climate-related activity. The hardcore is negotiators from just about every country in the world getting together to try and forge global agreements that will constrain and direct countries to a greater or lesser degree in order to address the threat of climate change and to drive down emissions and to help adaptation to climate change and so on. And then around that hardcore, there is this enormous sort of outgrowth now from that little seed, if you like, this huge kind of flowering shrub has grown, which is um, lots of other governments, um, local regional governments, um, civil society organizations, NGOs, activist groups, international organizations, multilateral development banks, the World Bank, 
other organizations, and then businesses. And it's a huge business event now, and you get lots of CEOs coming along, you get banks, you get investors, you get everyone trying to pitch their climate-related technology and so on. It's a, it's a, a sort of a huge trade fair, really, as much as any kind of uh, sort of diplomatic conference, it always seems to me. Does that... I mean, what does that make you feel about being here and about this process? Is that a good thing, do you think, for the purpose that we're all meant to be here for, which is tackling climate change and then helping the world move to a more sustainable path? Or does that, as I say, huge kind of superstructure of activity around that hardcore actually detract from the work that the COP is meant to be doing? I think it adds to it, but Michael, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, I think it's that. Of course, I can't compare to prior cops. I don't know exactly, but we were discussing earlier about how many people are here, and we don't know the firm number, 70,000 or 85,000 or 100,000. I was told by someone that there are 24,000 negotiators here and 14,000 observers, which means the other thirty to 60,000 people are in the financial world or they're either buying something or selling something or negotiating something in the business side, not the diplomacy side. And that's pretty interesting. And I think that should be additive. It just means that more of the world, more sectors than just diplomats are stopping to talk about climate change for several days or several weeks. In fact, I heard just this morning, I haven't fact-checked it, but that the COP28 news stories are the biggest news stories in the world right now. They're streaming ahead of whatever celebrity divorce is happening or wildfire or something like that. So that is a good sign that people are starting to pay attention. And part of that's because of the, the, the CEOs or other people, the investors who are here. So I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, as you say, I think those numbers are very interesting. I hadn't heard that breakdown of the attendance just to kind of benchmark it for people. As you say, if there are 85,000 or whatever people in the sort of the inner core of this, which is what they call the blue zone of the talks, which is sort of the, the most tightly constrained area, even that, as I say, got 85,000 people inside it. That makes it bigger than Burning Man, which apparently had 73,000, but not quite as big as Coachella, which apparently gets to <laughs> 120,000. But, you know, it's on that same sort of scale of an event. I, I will say it's interesting because my climate school students, because you know I teach climate change mitigation, they call COP Coachella. Um, in the classroom, that's what climate they call Coachella. it. Coachella. That's what they say. Yeah. I, didn't, I didn't see that it's one. It's hot, kind was... of dirt. Yeah. Was... <laughs> but within it, I mean... So I find this environment really exciting because you are surrounded by a bunch of people who are trying to find pathways forward. And we disagree on what the pathway should look like, the technologies that might be front runners in it. I don't know. We disagree, I think, sometimes on the margin and sometimes in more substantial ways. And to have a bunch of people who are spending their time, dedicating their time, focused on this topic for this period of time, I think it's great that it's more than just the core. I think it's great that there's so many voices here. I've seen a lot of youth voices involved in a bunch of our different activities. I've seen a ton of women who are engaging in a space that they haven't felt welcome to in the past. And it's really great to see. I think it's a good sign that it's moving from just a policy discussion or an international negotiation to more specific questions about how to scale up quickly around the world, how to commercialize different technologies, how to clarify the rules so that investors can feel secure about their investments. One of the things about investments is you need not just clear rules, but stable rules. And the methane rules and the methane, like things that say, here are the rules and here's the timeline. And sending the signal makes it easier for the investors to get going. So they want to be part of that conversation. So I, I think this is all, all good. And if we look back at the international negotiations, it's easy to say, well, it made no difference. And we don't really know because we never ran the counterfactual. My suspicion is all those international negotiations over all those decades did no harm and might have helped. And if it might have helped, if nothing else, it gets people thinking about it, which has a subtle change in what research budgets are. Might ripple down, maybe not to national action in the United States, but state or local action. United States is just relevant 
in the last year and a half, frankly. But there was still action on decarbonization that started 15 years ago from more state actions. And some of that's just the headline. So there's some indirect effect that ripples down. So I suspect it was helpful, all those negotiations. And now there's some inertia with it. And I think that's a very good point, actually, in terms of, as you say, it's easy to underestimate the impact that the past 20, 25 years of climate negotiations have had. And in particular, I guess when you think about the trajectory that the world is on at the moment, it's not great. We're absolutely, as this exercise, the global stock take that we're doing here at COP28 is showing we're absolutely not on course to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees C. Where we were 20 years ago, it looked like we were on course for 4.5 degrees C or something like that. And we're certainly not at that anymore. Things like the idea that basically the world would have ever increasing coal consumption and that coal would end up in very steep escalation in greenhouse gas emissions. We've kind of moved away from that. And climate policy has been, I think, a crucial factor in putting us onto that trajectory, not least because, of course, what a lot of what happened was that we had a lot of uh, subsidies and support going into renewable energy, which helped that get to scale, which helped bring the costs down, which meant that now renewables are much more competitive and we're going to have a much bigger share of renewable energy in total global power generation than we would have had before all this climate effort started. So, yeah, no, I, I do think that's that's right. As you say, it's we, we shouldn't exaggerate the kind of the, the, the dismissals of, of yeah. cops in the past. And I'm a cynical yeah. guy, but I'm t telling myself, don't be too cynical about <laughs> the, the past. Right. I, I don't think there's anything bad in this conversation. There's nothing bad about we get together every single year and we force ourselves to set aside time for something because there is so much going on in the world. We've talked about this how many times, Ed, which is that there's so much going on in the world. If we didn't have a forcing function known as COP, would we actually be making the progress we are? So I don't want to run the counterfactual. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited that we're in a place where we're having these conversations and we push it. But I think, Ed, before we started recording today, you were talking about how some of these climate stories and COP are at the top of the readers' lists right now. And I've had questions, I know anecdotally, from people who – you know, they know what I do, sort of, but we don't talk about it a lot. And they're like, tell me more about this COP, COP thing. You know, what is going to be accomplished there? What's the point of it? What are you trying to do? Who's involved? And the fact that it's raised into the consciousness of that point, I don't think can be a bad thing. Absolutely. I do think that's right. And in fact, Toby, our producer, was telling me that his mum has been listening to the podcasts that we've been doing here. Hi, Toby's mum. Yeah, exactly. Toby's awesome. And asking questions about it. And I'm not sure, Toby, whether she would ordinarily have been interested in listening to the energy gang. I don't know if she's, a, maybe she's a regular listener, but even so, as you say, just that example of kind of COP28 raising the consciousness of climate in the public generally, that's absolutely a good thing. And what I heard a member of parliament from the UK say this yesterday, that this conference of parties also brings together the leaders of the dirtiest polluters together with the leaders of the poorest, most vulnerable nations. And they have to look each other eye to eye and the vulnerable get to say, what are you going to do about it? And it's a lot different if you're in person talking to them and you realize, oh, wait, my pollution doesn't stop at my borders. It's going to affect this small island nation or whatever it is. And that's valuable. And I think that has um, at least changed the consciousness of what the impacts are of our emissions. 100%. And it's helped us to understand the places that we're all coming from when we come to solutions. So you talked about national policy earlier, Ed. Absolutely, national policy is very important. But if you want practical pathways forward that solve things, having that community voice, having a diversity of voices is extremely important. Otherwise, we get solutions that don't maybe make a whole lot of sense sometimes. Or make sense for one actor, but not the rest. Exactly. Right? Yeah.
Absolutely. And actually, I mean, this is a point I've talked about before, but this has been something which has struck me again really forcefully being here is just what a diverse place the world is. If you just look at everyone kind of walking around and you know, the way they're dressed, the way they look, and then you think about the differences in uh, political systems, social structures, financial systems, their economies, their geography, their geology, their weather conditions, just, you know, all the vast diversity of humanity, all of it represented, ideally, just about all of it represented in some way at these talks. And as you say, the chance for people just to see each other face to face and to talk about the issues they're facing and to talk about what they want to see happen and the challenges that they face and just to kind of, even just at the level of, even if they don't reach agreement on things, just to understand each other's positions better, I do think that's hugely valuable. And that's certainly something which, yeah, definitely justifies this whole exercise. Yeah, and I think it exposes what is at the core where we actually agree. So the idea of how do we have our communities continue to be healthy and to be healthier over time, have opportunities for continued growth. Um, and then what things are not in the core, but actually are on more of the margins where we disagree. So what technologies, how quick will it be a role for fossil fuels or not in the short term, in the long term? So we can get so caught up in thinking that the argument is 90% of what's going on. It's much less than that. Like the arguments are there, but they're not actually at the full core. I think when you go around this group, you'll see at least the people that I speak to, which are from very diverse backgrounds, they have different positions they still have a core set of goals that are broadly aligned. Yeah, I do think that is absolutely right. So now tell me, in then the past few days that you've been here, what do you think is the most interesting and significant thing that you've seen or heard? I mean, Michael, what has it been a for you? A few things come to mind. Uh, I think there's a subtle change in language around fossil fuel phase out or phase down. And that the word unabated has been added, which I think makes a lot of sense. And I've been arguing loudly for this for many years that we don't need to phase down fossil fuels. We need to phase down unabated fossil fuels. It's not the fuel itself that's the problem. It's the emissions that's the primary problem. And if there is a way to do fossil fuels emissions free through capture or whatever conversions or variety of ways to do it that make economic sense, we should consider that option. And so I was at an event with Secretary John Kerry where he used the word unabated. So this is showing up in at least the American delegation's language. And I think this is important. That's very important for the Gulf states and other people who are other major oil and gas producers, they don't want to hear fossil fuels go to zero because it's what drives their economy. But hearing that the emissions need to go to zero, they're fine with that. So some subtle change of language really jumps out at me. Another one is I'm hearing the word fusion. I think this is the first cop ever. I was at an event yesterday moderated by Ernie Moniz, former Secretary of Energy, with John Kerry and some others and Costa Samaras from the White House. And they're talking about fusion. And Ernie Moniz said, I think this is the first cop where fusion's ever been mentioned in a serious way. And that's partly because of all the private capital going into fusion. And it's still far away, but we're going to need energy a long time from now as well. So those are a couple of things that jump out at me. Both fascinating. I agree. And I want to come back to that fossil fuel phase out, phase down, and, and that debate about that language, because that does seem to be something that's going to definitely overshadow the rest of the COP uh, until the final conclusion. But, but before we come on to that, what about you, Melissa? What else have you seen that you've been really interested by and struck by? All the things that Michael said 
plus a whole host of other things, which um, I've had a lot of discussion about the renewables tripling goal. And is that ambitious? Is it not? And actually, the fact that it seems ambitious shows how much work we need to do, especially on non-technical barriers and supply chains. Um, the loss and damages announcement at the beginning of this, I think we should just take a moment and say that was significant. That's I think big. it is fair to say that That's was and, huge. And that, when you say that announcement, so this is financing for the loss and damage fund. Yep. It's actually putting money behind something that came up at the end of the last COP, which is a loss and damage fund. So let's put money in because there are some impacts of climate change that just we're not avoiding and are going to be really difficult to adapt to. The amount's not huge though, right? I mean, what was on that? I think 725 million is the latest number that's been pledged. Snowball oh. effect though, Ed. It's like we have a snowball, we're starting to roll it down a hill. Eventually it gets momentum to the point that I mean, we've moved beyond, can we have a loss and damage fund? Does it make any sense? Okay, we're going to have one. And now we're actually putting money into it. And it's not enough. That's true. Um, hopefully we end up mitigating and being able to adapt to what we can't mitigate enough that we don't need it to be exceptionally massive. Um, but it's gaining momentum and it's a reality where I think if you went back and I'm picturing the, the, my colleagues, it was in the white house at the time at the cop you went to and their faces when they came back from what was a not exactly uplifting set of conversations. And we fast forward today and we have a loss and damage fund with money in it. That is a big difference. And I think we should just acknowledge as we acknowledge we need more that we've already made a big jump it is like we need 100 billion a year and it's less than a billion so it's a tiny slice and i think the american contribution is like 17 million or some small number but so it's not zero and a billion's more than zero so it's a step in the right direction and we we have this concept of reclamation with our wastewater and our solid waste and reclaiming old mines. so we do this in other parts of society we will pay to recover or reclaim or restore things we might as well do that because of climate effects as well. So it makes sense, frankly. So you mentioned this issue of the language that is expected to come out of the COP on the future of fossil fuels. I think this language is very important. So I've got a very Texas view, a major oil and gas producer, and Texas is increasing its oil production and gas production and wind production and solar production and battery storage implementation and hydrogen production and carbon capture sequester. It's all of it. So they don't have to be in competition. And... People might not like the oil and gas, but that gas is displacing a lot of coal. And frankly, Texas gas could displace coal in Indonesia, India, and China as well. So there's a story made that actually the rise of certain fossil fuels can be used to shut down other fossil fuels. But if we just say no fossil fuels, that can create a recalcitrance. But if we say, add this word, they cannot be unabated, which means you can't just dump the waste in the atmosphere. You have to either scrub it at that point, convert it, or recover it later with direct air capture or something like that. So that addition of the word by the Americans aligns with the Gulf states and Russia. It puts us in an interesting company, but I think is important from the American perspective. And I'll just say along these lines with the unabated, because the conversation was coming up in the last COP as well. And we left that with this uh, unsatisfactory where it was like, okay, it's unabated. So what does abated mean? If I capture 2%, it's yeah. abated. Yeah, so, what threshold is it abated? Yeah, and right. I'm really interested to see where that whole unabated, abated conversation goes. I know my colleague, Chris Bataille, who's here, he's an IPCC lead author on decarbonization of industry. And he literally wrote the paper on what a science-aligned abated target needs to be. And it's been picked up by the Canadian government. And he wasn't planning to come to COP. And he's here because they came in and said, you've written the paper on this. You've done the analysis on this. Can you come in and get into these discussions and help us understand what degree of abated we need? And his answer is it's in the probably 90 to 95% round in a lot of these in a lot of these applications. Um, so you clean up the rest of it a different way, but you're not capturing 20% or 5% or even half. You're capturing the vast majority of emissions that come out. 
And so that, I think, is the argument you'll hear from a lot of the people, certainly a lot of the people I've been speaking to here at the COP who are kind of hardliners for, no, no, the language has to be strictly, we commit to phasing out fossil fuels, simple as that, because they say, as you say, you can make the kind of the theoretical argument about abatement and unabatement, and you say, well, as long as you're capturing the emissions from fossil fuels, then it's okay to continue to use them, except that they would argue, in practice, we don't capture the emissions. And you can say, I mean, there has actually been a tremendous increase in interest in carbon capture in the past few years, not least driven by the Inflation Reduction Act and the incentives that that's got in the US. But quite a few other countries as well have made a lot of progress in carbon capture. But even so, if you look at all the projects that have been proposed around the world, they do not add up to anything like the scale that will be required really to make a significant difference to emissions if we are going to continue to use fossil fuels at the pace we're using them at the moment or even an increased pace. And also when you look at a lot of the projects for carbon capture that actually have been brought into operation around the world, they don't actually capture at those kind of 90, 95% plus rates that you're saying the science uh, says is going to be needed. Actually, they've been significantly lower rates of carbon capture emissions overall. So although it absolutely is kind of technologically possible to capture at higher rates, in practice, those rates have not been achieved. And therefore, people look at that picture of a carbon capture and say, well, look, it's too difficult. Basically, when you think about all these things, actually the better solution, although stopping using fossil fuels might seem like also an enormous challenge, it's not actually as big a challenge as continuing to use fossil fuels, but capturing the emissions. I know, Melissa, you're laughing. I, you, no, what do you I, think about that? I, I'm, I'm getting the brain waves from Michael right now because I know we both want to talk about carbon capture. Do you yeah. want to jump in first? Yeah, and then, well, I mean, okay. Come well, on. Go, so go. a couple, let me put some numbers <laughs> on this. In the United States is interesting because our carbon emissions peaked in an absolute sense around 2006 to 2008. We don't know exactly when. And despite population economic growth, our emissions have dropped about 20%. So from a little over 6 billion tons to a little under 5 billion tons without climate policy, by the way. So we are headed the right direction. And to my eye, it looks pretty straightforward to get from 5 billion tons down to 1 to 2 billion tons through continuing substitution of, uh, continuing substitution of cleaner fuels in the power sector, uh, electrification of transportation, and a variety of other things. If you get down to 1 to 2 billion tons a year and you have to scrub or remove it, from the smokestack, the tailpipe, or the atmosphere, that'll probably cost in a decade or two something like 50 to 100 bucks a ton, if we believe some of the technological learning pathways. That means to manage CO2 waste in the United States will cost 50 to $200 billion a year, which is in line with what we spend on solid waste management in the United States for landfills and trash pickup and liquid waste management. Solid waste is 100 to $200 billion a year, and it's hundreds of thousands of employees. And liquid waste is something like $100 billion a year or less, but also tens of thousands of employees. These are big sectors. And we can't imagine not having solid waste or liquid waste management today. So we can create a whole new industry that would employ a lot of people that would clean up the system. And that seems entirely doable to me. That doesn't seem preposterous. So put like that, it seems very compelling. I agree. And yeah, the argument does sound convincing, certainly for the US. I guess one question then that I would have about that is, what about other countries in the world? What about, I guess, countries in emerging Asia in particular that have huge reliance on coal-fired power generation, an enormous installed stock, big fleet of coal-fired power plants, 
and are still building more to meet their growing demand for energy, are they also going to create this huge new industry to capture and store all their carbon dioxide emissions? And in particular, as you say, because part of the way you can make that manageable is by cutting the emissions in the first place very significantly by shifting to clean fuels in the first place. Maybe. So I'm actually optimistic that will happen. So if you believe some of the announcements or analysis from China, Chinese oil and gas companies said that peak oil consumption happened this year, 2023. The oil companies are saying they're worried about declining revenues because of the rise of electric vehicles. It looks like coal plant construction, despite tens of gigawatts of new coal plants in China, they're also shutting down tens of gigawatts. So it looks like it actually might be plateauing right now. A lot of the coal mining and coal plant construction in China is more political than energy needs. They have other energy options. But coal mining and coal plant operations are very politically important. But because of the air pollution from those coal plants and the 2 million people a year who die from them in China, they'll have other reasons why they need to shut down on coal, frankly. So I, I expect they'll follow the same curve as the United States or the UK, maybe at a different time. So we started in 2006. Maybe they start in... 2030 or something, but I think they'll follow the same trajectory. I was going to say, and on this point, uh, this COP is the first ever health day, a COP that has a health day. And I think the numbers I was looking this morning, I mean, we're well north of 100. I think we're going towards like 130 plus signatures on the health declaration that's coming out. That is not insignificant. I mean, I've been writing about this climate and health connection talking about decarbonization health and the air pollution connections, because of course the sources of greenhouse gas emissions are very often sources or primary sources of different types of pollutants that hurt our bodies, our lungs and our hearts. Um, and it's really significant to see that here because it's like climate change is affecting our health, but also there's all these other health related impacts from the technologies that are producing our energy today and that may produce our energy in the future. And so when it comes to this phase down, phase out, which I tell you, that has been at the heart of so many conversations and points of tension um, here. The health component is definitely not lost. And having that health day early with the trade conversations and everything else, I think was a very interesting strategic move. That is a really interesting point. Going back to the phase, phase out, down, phase out. Phase out. <laughs> yeah. 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 So what I wonder about that is how much does it matter? Because viewed from one perspective, I think it could seem quite a philosophical and abstruse issue. Does it really make a difference whether we insert one particular word or another into the communique coming out of a COP meeting? I mean, does it? I think it matters hugely. Um, and I honestly will be surprised. And so everyone can hear this recorded and we'll see if I am surprised if it's anything but phase down, it's not going to be phase out coming of these discussions. And I think that push between those words matters a lot to different countries. Um, so different countries who right now get all their revenue or produce a ton of their energy with fossil fuels, which fairly is all of us, but some countries have easier pathways than others to actually bring those emissions down. And I'm thinking even within countries, I know last summer when I was in Iceland, it was like, you could talk to the people around Reykjavik who were like, geothermal, hoorah, let's go with hydro for our industry. And then you're out in the Eastern Western fjords and they're like, practically electrifying this stuff makes no sense. We're going to do offsets. That's what we're going to do. And you take that on a global level and you have actual countries who are in the same boat. I would say in my view is the same that every word matters. And the philosophical approach I take is if you tell important stakeholders, say a lot of countries in their large oil and gas sector, say that they don't have a place in the future, they will resist that future. But if you say you have a place in the future and here's how, then they're more likely to embrace that future. I think it's very important. And we 
probably want these companies because they know how to drill for geothermal or sequestration. They know how to move molecules around in pipes. They know how to do offshore. They know how to do project management. There are a lot of things that we need that they know how to do. And if we sort of say, well, you don't get a role in the future, that's not going to work. Because it's beyond picking winners like we do when we talk about electrification and renewables and what the best technologies are there. It's actually defining losers if you say phase out. And we're saying, okay, everyone can be at this table. This table is a net zero table. So um, come to it. Bring your skills. Bring your technologies. If you can be a part of this, that's awesome. Find your role in this path versus saying because of the past or this exact moment in the present, you are out of this conversation. And back to your question about who's here at COPED, I think this is a really part, important part of the conversation, having the fuel producers that give us the fuels we use today who can also help to accelerate change. Another thing you were talking about earlier was this goal of tripling renewable power generation capacity by 2030, which seems to often get linked with the fossil fuel that actually, I think people see a connection between them and people see that we should be boosting renewables in order to expedite this phase down slash phase out of fossil fuels. Is that a less controversial issue? So you've been in plenty of conversations about that goal as well. Is that something, in fact, that everyone is agreed on or just by the same token that you have people who are wanting to essentially defend the place of fossil fuels in the energy system, do you also get them saying, therefore, because of that, we don't want to be too ambitious about the growth of renewables? No, I mean, I don't, when it comes to renewables tripling goal, I'm curious if y'all have been in different conversations, but it's been more, that's great. Can we go faster? And we talked about it, uh, you know, before COP started about how tripling is definitely ambitious. It's pushing beyond what you'd expect anyway, but there's an economic argument for renewables. A lot of the pace is being defined by non-technical barriers, barriers in supply chains, et cetera. And so it's saying, okay, how can we do that? And more to the point, how do we do that not in countries who already have amazing energy infrastructure? How do we actually get this tripling to happen as we build up the infrastructure we need to get those hundreds of millions of people in this world that don't even have access to electricity, much less the billions who don't have access to enough of it, on to a system where they have those opportunities for growth, opportunities for prosperity that come from having access to modern energy systems? Yeah, just as a data point on the ambition of that uh, goal. I talked about these numbers before, but just to drop them into this conversation as well, our forecast at Wood Mackenzie in terms of what we call our base case, though that's our view of what's most likely to happen, has 6,600 gigawatts of renewable energy generation capacity worldwide in 2030. That tripling goal implies 11,000. So that's about a 65% uplift then from the course that it looks like we're on at the moment. So yeah, I mean, certainly it does seem like a stretch goal. What's your view, Michael, on that target? Does it seem uh, sensible to you to set that kind of goal? I think it's fine. I don't know how you enforce that kind of goal. So it strikes me mostly as signaling that this is desired by the countries and by the regions and by the companies, perhaps. So I think it's very exciting. There was another announcement of tripling of nuclear, which I thought was really remarkable, although I can't remember the time. I think it's a later timeline than the renewables one. It's by 2050. That by one, 2050. Yeah, yeah. And so, but it includes United States, Japan, and France, major nuclear powers. In in some ways, I thought that was great because I think nuclear is an important part of the solution. But it also, the fact that it exists is an interesting emission of the problems of renewables, which is maybe we can't raise them by a factor of 10. We can only triple them. And we're going to need more than tripled of something. And so nuclear might be that other thing. And so uh, I thought the tripling of renewables is great, but not enough. But tripling of nuclear and tripling of renewables, like, okay, well, that's pretty interesting. There's a 400 plus gigawatts of nuclear in the world right now. So tripling means a terawatt of nuclear, which 
is non-trivial globally because it especially has high, such high capacity factors. So combine that with all the terawatts of renewables that have maybe a third capacity factor and we got a lot of terawatts of clean stuff. Yeah, and I'll just say around all these things, the renewables tripling, the methane announcements that have been made, the nuclear announcements, um, a lot of them, if not all of them, and I'm racking my brain to think if I can think of an exception here, but there are things we can do with existing technology, stuff that actually... In some cases, one could argue we could accomplish without big announcements at a COP. Um, but in other cases, maybe it is pushing and signaling. So the U.S. coming and saying, we are going to get behind something that is about increasing nuclear power. And so question one is, how does that play out at home? Are we actually going to put in new reactor technology? Are we going to reform the NRC? Are we going to do all the things that need to be done to actually get technologies out there? Or are we going to be saying, hooray, it was a success because it happened outside of our borders later? So the US is talking about exporting small modular reactor technology around the world, and they've got some promising looking export markets in Europe, Romania, Poland, some countries in Africa, Ghana, very interested in developing its nuclear industry. It seems a bit tricky, though, to me for the US to be going out there saying, we're going to sell this technology to the world, when apparently they can't get one of those plants built in the United States. And the, the new scale SMR plant apparently uh, collapsing basically for lack of interest because the buyers couldn't be fined to take the electricity from that plant. That doesn't send a great signal really about the viability of this technology, does it? You have at the local and state level, a lot of bipartisan Republican and Democratic support for nuclear. And at the federal level, you have a lot of bipartisan support for nuclear. Nuclear, hydrogen and carbon capture tend to be the forms of energy or energy action that get the most bipartisan support. So nuclear has a good sort of policy condition. Melissa mentioned reforming the NRC. It has a slow regulatory condition combined with a policy support. And so maybe you can reform the NRC. There's even whispers that maybe the Navy would take over licensing of the small modular reactors because they have so many decades of experience with it and could spin out some technology. So this is all pretty interesting. From a climate perspective, we want a lot of nuclear, a lot of places probably. And it's a great export market for the United States if we can figure it out. It's probably faster to build in the UAE or Ghana than it is the United States. We've learned that lesson a few times. From a Department of Defense national security perspective, it makes the Pentagon nervous to think about a lot of nuclear materials and experts in a lot of corners of the world where we don't have great visibility. So you might see tension within one stakeholder, the U.S. government, where there are pro-nuclear people and sort of concerned about nuclear people in terms of all the locations it might show up. But those other places might be the first markets because the United States is so tough. Having said that, in the United States, we have data centers that require hundreds of megawatts of 24-7 clean power that might be the first customers for nuclear because they're having trouble getting utility hookups because utilities say, we can't provide it to you. We don't have the substation. We don't have the wires. We don't have the power. So you might see behind the meter solutions. In fact, a lot of these announcements are coupled with someone from Microsoft or someone like that saying, our data center will use this. X Energy, a small modular reactor company who canceled their IPO, has a deal with Dow Chemical, for example. So we might have behind the meter customer solutions, uh, demand for small modular reactors, but maybe not at the bulk of grid yet. We'll see. Yeah, that's going to be very interesting. Certainly something to watch. It does feel like, though, something needs to happen. There needs to be some projects that actually get built, demonstrate they can be made to work, and actually start supplying power to somebody. Because if not, then if it's all still vaporware, it's going to be very hard for international sales to take off as well, I think. Quick, yeah, quick anecdote in Texas where we have a very Republican, very conservative state, a very Republican, very conservative governor. And I was at an event with him just like six weeks ago, an announcement around small modular reactors with Dow Chemical and X Energy. And he made this speech like, we need clean power, it needs to be reliable, sort of an anti-wind, anti-solar, but pro-nuclear speech. And we need it within the next five years. 
the CEO of X Energy said, well, how about eight? It, which was a very <laughs> awkward kind of press conference to have. So the, the issue, I think, is mostly the timing. Uh, of course it works. We know it'll work eventually. Can we make the timing work? The economics is complicated. Uh, great discussion the other day with some other people about how airlines do it. They don't manufacture their new Boeing 777 or whatever it was. I'm dating myself with a 90s plane, but they don't actually start manufacturing until they have a book of orders of like 200 planes. And then they go build. And maybe small modular reactors need to be more like that. So I think we've probably covered uh, all the key headlines. This, as In our discussion that we've been having, this feels like we've addressed all the kind of the big news items that have come out of the COP, things that have been making the headlines that people have been reading around the world. What else? What else has struck you as interesting? Are there other things perhaps that may be going under the radar a little bit that you think are important that you've been hearing about, talking to people about that, as I say, haven't been noticed so much yet? I've got one, um, and it's around gender. So I was at a Women Leading on Climate event yesterday, packed house, standing room only, overflow rooms. It was incredible. Um, and we were sitting there talking about how many women are actually a part of the negotiations. Answer is small one. There have been, uh, you know, there are those goals and ambitions towards having it be 50-50 representation, but it's it's not there yet. And actually, even in the attendees at the COP, I can't wait to see the final numbers come out and if they're going to publish those numbers to see how many, you know, women we have who are here. And I will say from all of the younger women that I was on that panel with and that I spoke to after the event, they communicated how hard it had been for them to even get into the blue zone and how just talking amongst their peers, they really struggled to get badges, to get access to the conversation. Um, and in particularly those who are non-native English speakers. And I know that, um, efforts have been made. I will just, we should give credit where credit is due. Efforts have been made this year to bring in young women and to bring translators with them. So we get representation from communities where English is not something that you have access to and you do not learn that over time. So give credit where credit is due, but it was a notable conversation. And I will say in terms of under the radar, it was not one that I heard in other conversations outside of those pockets and it's not in the headlines yet. And so that was just a big one. Is there change happening? Do you think if we come back at COP29, do we think we're going to see the gender balance being better than it is here? Is there actual progress being made or not really? What was your sense of it? I mean, in terms of a step function progress, uh, incremental progress, sure. Um, a step function progress takes an intentional decision and then sticking with that decision. And right now we aren't 100% sure who's going to host the COP next year. So I think there's just a lot of questions on how far this is going to be up in people's priority lists because that's the deal. If it's not in your top 10, incremental, sure, but actual step change functions... Mm, I don't think so. And location matters. It some does, countries are hugely. more friendly for women visitors. Some countries, women can't travel without a letter from their husband or something. So I think the location will matter. What about you, Michael? In terms of things going under the radar, what's really interested you? I'm starting to hear artificial intelligence pop up in a variety of panels. And I don't know if it was here last year or not, but it's certainly on people's minds now as a source of growing demand for power but also a tool that can be used to improve energy systems or help do the science for fusion we talked about earlier or something like that. So artificial intelligence as an accelerant of the solutions, but also an accelerant of demand will be interesting to watch the tension sort of play out and how that, what yeah. that sorts out. I got to flag one thing on AI. So David Sandalow, who I think you both might know, who's on our team at Columbia, um, he and a number of colleagues came out with a report about AI before COP. He's here at COP. And I mean, he's 
all over the news, all over discussions, talking about how can it help in the near term? Where can it help? Uh, what does it do on the demand and supply side? And then longer term, what can this actually change? But I'm going to go back to a conversation that we had at the World Economic Forum's Global Future Councils, which Ed, I can't remember if I told you about this one, but I asked a world leading professor from Berkeley about like how much can AI change things? And he was talking on the stage in the opening plenary, which is online for folks who want to watch it. And he was saying, look, everyone is talking about AI, kind of like in energy, we talk about biofuels as if it's going to solve everything, but there's not enough biofuels in the world to solve everything. Well, on AI, he said, I'm now the solution that everyone thinks is going to solve everything. I'm going to tell you it's going to change things on the margin significant ways, but not completely transformational changes in the next bit where it's going to be transformational. And this actually relates to the gender conversation is around education and then the knock on effects on energy. So let me explain that. Can you imagine AI systems? We're, we're really close to this today where every single person in this world could have a personalized tutor through their entire life. Talk about education access. And we know what increasing access to education does in terms of population growth, in terms of access to education, in terms of development, in terms of gender parity. I mean, the knock-on effects of that are massive and energy is not immune to those effects. And so that's not a change happening tomorrow, but it's a change that could be very transformational before 2050 and certainly 2060. That is really fascinating. And um, Michael, you may remember we were on that Energy Gang show uh, earlier this year when we talked about AI and energy and I think the general consensus, I think certainly I think the consensus from you and Amy Myers Jeff, who was also on the show, she is much more uh, optimistic and positive, I think, than either of us were on that uh, in that discussion in terms of the impact in a positive sense that she thinks AI can have on demand for energy and really help manage energy demand and increase efficiency very significantly. I was quite skeptical then. I'm wondering if I ought to moderate my position a bit. I and know. I think definitely think we should come back and talk about it again. Because it's something to think about. I think even just in the year or so, however long it's been since we last talked about it, I think there have been a lot of developments. And in fact, like you, I've also been talking to a lot of people about it while I've been here at the COP. And certainly it is something which there is a great deal of interest in. I mean, I guess I think my kind of instinctive position had been close to that Berkeley professor you're talking about, which is, yes, it's significant, but it's at the margin. It's not necessarily changing everything. But I think it's important to keep yeah. an eye on it yeah. because it's such a fast moving field. Well, and and I'm just, I'm an energy systems modeler, right? Been doing that for a long time, back when I was one of your students, Michael. Um, and I think about what I don't consider or what I take for granted in those models. I take GDP growth for granted. I take population for granted. I take different service sector and other developments in the, in the economy for granted. Those are assumptions. They're exogenous. They're defined outside of my model. What if they're wrong? Like I just, ah, I just. We all have I, the same assumptions and they all could all be wrong. They could all be wrong. Yeah. And what does that mean? And what does that mean in particular country cases? And then when you take a couple of those countries that actually are really impactful when it comes to bending the curve or not in the very near term, whoo, a wrong assumption in just a couple of those. This is interesting. So I'm just trying to take my blinders off. That's it. So I just, just want to put it out there as a conversation. It's a good one. It is a great conversation. As you say, it's a fascinating topic and we should definitely come back to it in the future. Um, for now, we ought to just about wrap it up, I think. Before I let you go, I just want your kind of final thoughts about COP28 and what you've seen here. And I guess the fundamental question I have, which I've been asking myself and I don't know what the answer is, but what has changed in your view of climate and energy as a result of being here? In the sense of, I guess in particular, has it made you more or less optimistic positive about our ability as a world to come together such that we can avoid 
most catastrophic consequences of global warming. Michael, I'm really curious if we're about to say the same thing. I really am. So I bet we are. I should get, really get you to write it down on a piece of paper and then yeah, you can reveal really, it simultaneously. So, I wrote it down. So already. maybe I'll go first so you get the last word. <laughs> yeah, go. I'm super I, curious. I'm more optimistic. I'm always optimistic, but I'm more optimistic because the pledges, though perhaps unenforceable, they exist. And that gives some sense of accountability. I'm optimistic because the investment in business community is here. I'm optimistic because of the number of people here. I'm optimistic by the number of families with kids and strollers I see in the green zone, which means it's a family affair. It's not just for the diplomats negotiating. And I'm really encouraged by the students here and the different academic delegations from different universities. Uh, it's not just the faculty and staff, uh, the researchers like us here on this conversation with you, but also the students. And I spoke at the Student Energy Summit a couple of days ago in Abu Dhabi with more than 600 students from around the world, the most geographically diverse audience I've ever spoken to. And they're serious about this and it's their life mission. So I, I leave enthused and encouraged. think this is great. Is that what you were going to say? So yeah, it's written down here on my paper, students who are with me and also attending. So I know just from my climate mitigation class, I have a student who's shadowing me, Lucas, who's been directly participating, asking questions. I know he was an event with you earlier this week, Ed, as well. Um, it's fantastic to have him there and hear his contributions. And I also have a student from my mitigation class, Cassia, who was a part of the Polish delegation and for, I think it was five years before she came back to graduate school. And she's here organizing the youth in a ton of events. Um, and those are just tip of the iceberg. There are students all over the place, not just from Columbia, but from universities around the world and schools around the world. And that, that's exciting. So that's great. So I, as I was saying, I wasn't sure how to feel, but actually I think both of you have really convinced me. I'm now feeling much more optimistic as well <laughs> than I was at the start of this conversation. You're our most important first toughest audience. So this is good. <laughs> No, but it's it's the the pledges, the goals, they exist and they're achievable. We have those yeah. solutions and the people, the people are at the heart of it. So I'm glad you're feeling more optimistic. Excellent. No, that is fantastic. That makes me, as I say, I was very pleased to see you at the beginning of this conversation. I'm even more pleased to see you now we've had this talk. I think it's been it's been great. It's been great talking to you both. Thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Thanks very much for your time. Melissa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me here. It's been great. And thanks very much, Michael. Thanks so much. Let's do it again next year. Absolutely. In the meantime, I hope you both get some sleep during the rest yeah, of class exactly. because I don't know. <laughs> thanks very much to all of you for listening. We'll be back again with more news and insights from all the latest at COP28 in the next few days. Until then, goodbye.